Hey, what's going on? It's Doug Cunnington here, and this is The Doug Show. I'm pretty excited about this interview because I'm talking to Craig Hewitt, the founder of Castos, and I've been using that podcast hosting company for a few years. I have a couple shows over there, and I tell all my friends about it because I like the service, and I think it's been pretty impressive to watch Craig grow the company over the years. So, Craig, how are you doing today? Hey, Doug. I'm doing great. How about yourself? Fantastic. And we're recording this during the holiday season. So I appreciate you taking the time out and everything. So let's just jump into it. I want to hit a couple of the highlights really quick. And you guys recently hit a million dollars annual recurring revenue. You have a team of about 16 or so. And for the people that don't know you at all, can you give a little intro on yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Craig Hewitt. I'm the founder of Castos. We're a podcast hosting and analytics platform uh, with a kind of embedded productized service in it. And maybe we can talk about that a bit later. And, and that's really where I got my start in this like online business world is with a, a previous version of, of the same business that was called Podcast Motor, um, where we did like done for you podcast editing and production. At this point, we're servicing just under 100 customers a month. Uh, on on that side and and on the hosting side on the kind of software platform um you know thousands of customers uh they're you know using us to to power their podcasts and what's your background did you have a corporate gig beforehand or how did you find your way into this area yeah like totally unrelated yeah i had a corporate gig uh, i have a sales and marketing background i was in sales uh for a couple of different medical device companies so selling disposable and capital uh equipment to hospitals Got it. And how, how long did you do that? Uh, that's all I ever did. So 10 years off okay. and on. Yeah. And then you found yeah. yourself in this other area. So what happened to drive you from sales over to entrepreneurship? Yeah. So, so like a lot of folks, um, you know, kind of like had kids and said like, Oh, you know, traveling all the time and, at the time, I was like a oh, high stress of like the corporate sales gig is, is not for me. And then I traded that for higher stress of entrepreneurship, but um, was just traveling a lot and away from my family a lot. And it's like, this sucks. Like, I just don't want to do this. And, and started listening to a bunch of Pat Flynn and Tropical MBA and startups for the rest of us. And was like, this seems do- totally doable. <laughs> and so I started my podcast, which is called Rogue Startups. And I co-host it with a guy named Dave Rodenbaugh. And uh, who's also in Denver. Um, and gosh, we just did 260 episodes of that show last week. And um, so I started started my podcast and I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is great. But this is also like a pain, you know, like there's a lot of complexity that goes into this, just a lot of work. And so that's where the podcast motor service came from is I saw the pain and said, I bet, you know, people would pay for this to just not be a pain anymore. Um, and that was kind of how I exited the corporate world as I did that nights and weekends for about a year, uh, was able to save up enough money and kind of gain, gain runway to where I was able to go full time with that. Um, after, yeah, after about a year. Nice. In what year did you start listening to like smart passive income and TMBA, which those two were my gateways by the way as yeah. well. And yeah, what years were that? roughly and then 2015 i guess okay great yeah and then when did you start your show and were you qualified to host such a show at the time that you started or what did you even talk about yeah so so like i think this is interesting um i was definitely not qualified right but i just wanted to do it and um and i think that like there's there's this concept of like relative expertise you know like you don't have to be the person that's the expert on this thing, but you, you, you need to know more than someone else. And so that was kind of my shtick at the beginning was like talking to other people that were kind of similar to where I was and maybe a couple steps ahead. And, and I would interview them just to learn and, and to network really. And, um, and even now, like I consider myself, you know, whatever kind of midway through my journey of, uh, as an entrepreneur and a founder and as a leader. Um, and so definitely am further along than, than I was. And then maybe some people are, but I have a long way to go to, to, to like where a lot of folks that running, you know, big eight, nine figure companies are. Um, and so I think that's important for folks to realize, like, you don't have to be the epitome ultimate 
you know, Mac daddy at anything. You just have to be, you know, a little bit better and further along than someone else to teach them something. And I think that's what a lot of us who podcast want to do is, is to help and teach. Exactly. And you just have to be a little bit further along than your audience and maybe even just a few steps ahead. Like you just read the blog post that you're about to talk yeah, about. Exactly. Yeah. I've definitely done that. So yeah. you had this show and you realized that there were some things that you had to do and that's where the, the service came out of it. What was it called again? Uh, it's called podcast motor. Okay. And I suspect you got some ideas from like TMBA, like, Hey, you're finding a problem that you're experiencing yourself. You scratch your own itch and then you realize that you have a great system that you could roll out. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, at, at that time, my, my two kind of friends, like new friends in the, in the kind of online business world, Brian Castle uh, and Justin McGill were doing the same thing, launching productized services in order to kind of parlay into, into a product business. And, and that's, that's what I did. I mean, really, it's just like a WordPress site and a Stripe form and like that and, and Trello board. And, and that's it. And that's the cool thing about productized services. Like you can set up an SEO agency or a PPC agency or a content marketing agency in a day, literally. And um, even now it's like in an hour, you know, you can just do it and start charging money and be profitable and all that kind of stuff. And then you grow your team and the process and stuff like that to remove yourself from the business. And that's where productized services or, or agencies get pretty cool. I think um, it is when you're able to just run the business and not be on the fulfillment level at all. Um, that's, that's where they get pretty cool to me. And I just realized we should define productized service. So what's the difference between a productized service versus a service versus an agency model and delineate as much as we can. There's probably some overlap, I'm sure. Totally. Yeah. So, so for me, a productized service is we do this thing for this fixed price on a recurring basis every month. Um, so, you know, we're a content marketing agency. We write two blog posts a month for you and they're 1500 words and they have images and we post them to your WordPress site and we do the keyword research and all that stuff. For me, an agency is, uh, an individual or company comes to an agency and says, I have this problem. And the agency says, okay, great. We'll, you know, craft the proposal and all this kind of stuff. And it's just this, they can do anything kind of thing. Um, that's the, and, and then like a freelancer is like, owner operator person doing the work. Um, but in a productized service, typically it, the way you want to get it is the, the founder is not doing the work, um, but the team and the process is doing the work. Got it. And the big benefit on the productized service is, and I'll let you provide the punchline. Uh, scale, scalability and, and profit. Yeah. I mean, you, you can scale it much beyond what a freelancer uh, or consultant could do. Perfect. And in those early days, how did it look for you? Messy. Like just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a type A organized person. And, and so uh, we grew despite me a lot that, that that was just like, we were very fortunate that it was a, and still is a really great service for the right people. You know, probably like a lot of folks who listen to this show have, you know, a little more money than time, want a podcast, but don't want to do all the stuff that you have to do when you podcast. Um, and so they come to us for, you know, a couple hundred bucks an episode and it's, it's all done for them. Um, and so we, we had a, a lot of inbound interest and in, in folks referring our service to their friends and stuff like that. And so had to figure out like scaling services and processes and hiring and onboarding folks as, as we went. And it was, I mean, it was a, big old mess for, for a long time, you know, and, and finally got to the point where we got the right people in like kind of management roles to where they could just figure that stuff out. Um, because it was just headaches every day for a long time. Yeah. I can, I can imagine as you're trying to figure it out and you had not done that kind of specific work before I take it. And did you have experience in your corporate days building a team or having a lot of people working for you? Uh, no, not, not at all like this. No, but, um, you know, we're part of a team and kind of like a team leader, uh, but not like a manager at all. So yeah, it was all very much figuring out as we went. Okay. And we'll hit that more coming up in a bit. So let's talk about the transition from productized service over to SaaS. So 
Castos does a lot more things than just the service. So you can expand a little bit on that as needed, but how did the transition look? And I mean, were you even planning for it or just arose out of doing this work? Yeah, literally came from one of our customers uh, at Podcast Motor, a guy named Brad Tunard, uh, who runs Delicious Brains, a big WordPress product company. Uh, he emailed me one day and said, hey, I know you're obviously into, big, into podcasting and wanted to get in a product. Uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Hugh Lashbrook, is selling this WordPress plugin called Seriously Simple Podcasting that does podcast kind of management in WordPress. Um, this might be an interesting thing for you to, to pick up and kind of build uh, along the side or on top of podcast motor or whatever. Um, and that was kind of where Castos came about is, is we acquired this WordPress plugin that was, and, and still is entirely free um, and built the hosting platform to connect to it. So at the beginning, a lot of the Castos customers uh, came from WordPress because that was the only way you could use it. About eight months after we launched the first version, we opened it up to where you could use it as a standalone platform. Like a lot of folks might use, you know, simple or, or Libsyn or something like that. Um, and at this point, about half our customers are using WordPress with Castos and about half aren't. Um, and so, yeah, and that's how Castos got its start was by us acquiring this free WordPress plugin. Um, and to this day is like a really strong lead gen um, channel for us. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I can't remember how I came across you guys the first time, but I... I wasn't bullshitting. I've used several different companies and tested them out. And I eventually landed on, on you guys because of a a few different reasons, which it's not a commercial for you guys, by the way, but um, (laughs) it is, uh, it it worked really well. And I liked the offering in general. So can you share how much you bought the plugin for? Uh, I, can't share specifically, but like okay. four figures. Yeah. Okay. So nothing crazy. Like people yep. may be thinking you bought this huge acquisition channel, but it was relatively affordable for like a plugin that that works and and does what it's supposed to do. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So you ended up with a plugin, and it was going to be a, a good lead generation lead generator for the service. And did you? When did you start the hosting portion of this? Right away. Yeah, I mean, right okay. away, the, the plan was always buy the plugin, build the, the SaaS to kind of connect to that. And um, and then, and then like, I didn't have a plan for what would happen with the service from there. Um, the, the plan all along was that the service would help us bootstrap the development of the software platform because I'm not a developer. And so, you know, hire a developer and they are expensive and take a long time to, to build things. And I mean, he's wonderful. The first, the first, our first developer was amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just, just takes a lot of time and, and resources. And, and so nice to be able to do that through bootstrapping, uh, with the, the profits from the service. This episode is brought to you by Otis. That's O D Y S dot global. They're the source for age domains strong branding, and powerful backlinks. The featured domain for today is beautifultype.net. It is a blog. It was a blog that was created by two web designers, and they showcased typography and fonts. So there were photos and illustrations. The domain was created in 2010, so it's about 12 years old. The domain rating is still at 46, and the domain authority is 34. Obviously, a very brandable name with uh, type right in the domain there. You, of course, could lean on the typography aspect and, and fonts. There's a lot of uh, keywords. And the, the thing is, there were plenty of links pointing to different parts of the site. So it'd be a good move to rebuild those. Additionally, Because it is design-related, you probably could put content around themes, theme builders, stock photography, other fonts, and people get certainly very into the design aspect and opt for custom fonts. There are 329 referring domains and 270 are do follow. There are some very relevant, very powerful links from places like 99designs, Creative Market, webdesignledger.com, Smashing Magazine, and Elegant Themes. 
It's still indexed in Google and there's a lot of branded anchor text. If you join Otis using my affiliate link, you can get $100 into your account and it helps support the show. So thanks a lot to Otis. You're not a technical person. Did you have a hard time like even conveying to the developer what you needed? And I have a background in that specifically. So project management for software. So I know the requirements and the testing and like the whole development cycle, but was that challenging for you? Incredibly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really painful for the developer. Like I think all developers that are listening to this right now, just cringe at the non-technical, you know, founder or product person that's trying to, you know, guide them on, on, you know, what's being built. And it's, it, it's just hard because like we literally speak a different language, right? Like we literally, are not saying the same things when I say, Hey, I want this to go connect like that. And they go interpret it and build something. And you come back and say, no, that like steps two and three are backwards and, and all this. And so, I mean, went from literally a Google doc where we would just kind of, you know, wrap on, on features to Trello to, you know, we've tried them all <laughs> at this point. We, um, we use a combination of notion and GitLab um, and product board, um, to, to kind of plan out our product stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, the evolution of communicating what's in my head to a person who can make that, you know, and there's a lot of nuance in that is, uh, or teams that they can make that is, is still really super challenging. Where'd you find your first developer that you were working with or developers? He was a referral from the guy we bought the plugin from. That's lucky that person super lucky <laughs> yeah super lucky yeah okay and then with i guess and anything else to note about like having a technical founder we were talking a little bit beforehand so um a, a lot of the audience that's listening they they do have a technical background so yeah i'll, I'll ask the question what do you think about technical founders versus uh, like doing it yourself? And do you have advice for people? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, programs like Y Combinator, um, they almost exclusively fund um, multi-founder companies, um, two or three, uh, where one is technical and one is not, um, or, or, or both are technical um, because it's just so hard for a non-technical person to, to learn the language of developers um, and, and have a good eye for product, I think. Um, and it's really hard for a developer to know all the sales and marketing and ops stuff that, that a non-technical person should come to the table with. And so, I mean, I still am a, a solo founder and um, we've raised a little bit of money, which has helped a lot in, in kind of bridging that gap. But if I had it to do over again or ever do this again, I will hundred percent have a, a technical founder because it's just so important. Both, both sides are so important for me. Having someone that I can really super trust on the technical side is just vital. So I don't have to think about and worry about, you know, timelines and product and, and all that kind of stuff, but can do everything else in the business. And, and for them, they need to have the confidence that, Hey, I can focus on product and someone else can, you know, <laughs> you know, run the business and, and, you know, make us money and stuff like that. So I, I think it's, if you get the right complementary pair, it's super important. And, and early on, Jonathan, our first developer, Jonathan Bossinger was, I mean, really almost like co-founder level to me, you know? Um, and yeah, without it, like there's no chance that we would have been able to do what we did. Um, if it was just going to run of mill, uh, contractual developer relationship, you know? Got it. And looking back, I'm curious, do you think you had the network or the ability to pull on or find a tech co-founder? I know, I suspect these days, you know, a lot more people and you have a much bigger network, so you could probably find the right person. But back then, could was it even possible? Probably. Yeah, pro probably. I mean, like you said, I, I know a lot more people now. And so it'd be a lot easier, but still quite challenging, I think. Um, you know, a lot of people equate a co-founder to to a spouse. And, and I, I, I think that's right. I mean, the, what I would want out of a co-founder is, yeah, every bit as much as, as my wife. Um, 
in terms of, of support and trust and reliability and everything. And so um, I don't like, I think you're getting at like, how would I do that? I don't know. Um, but, but I would try very hard to do it. I think that you almost have to have worked with someone. And that's what I see a lot of with multi-time founders is they, you know, they, they're a single founder and maybe hire that really key developer in their first company. That person becomes on to become like CTO or lead developer or whatever. And then they bring them to the next company. Um, I, I can imagine that that being how it might go for, for me. And I've been smaller scope, but I've partnered with people that I was in masterminds with. So I, I've known them for years and I've had many hours of conversation with them. And there's that built in trust that you're talking about, which is probably like one of the biggest, the biggest things. I mean, you can, people can learn a lot of things and figure out problems, but the, the, the trust you have to really put in the time. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. Very cool. So what podcast do you listen to these days? Gosh, uh, you know, so like I haven't commute, I, I used to listen to a ton, right. Cause I was in like field based sales. So like I was driving, two, three, four hours a day and would just listen to a ton of podcasts. These days, I listen to two, really three really regularly. Uh, I listen to Startups for the Rest of Us, so Rob Walling. Uh, and then I listen to Bootstrap Web, so Brian Castle and Jordan Gall. Um, and then I listen every once in a while to uh, Built to Sell, a guy named John Warlow. Really, really, really smart guy, written a couple of really good books. Um and then the other one that I just recently started listening to is Invest Like the Best. And I forget the guy that is Colossus, Join Colossus is their, their site. Yeah, those are the four that I, that I listen to most of the time these days. And you bring up a good point about not commuting. And I, I used to listen to a lot more shows as well, especially you're doing a job that you don't want to do. So I would actually listen like all day long <laughs> right. during the commute. <laughs> but... Have you noticed, obviously you have a lot of data being a podcast hosting company, has uh, the listening level gone up or down due to COVID and or quarantining and stuff like that? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, it went down a lot uh, in almost all categories. Uh, the exceptions to those were like comedy uh, and in some cases news um, that, that the consumption went up a lot. Um, as folks have gotten back to their normal lives, um, and I think here around the holidays of 2021, we might be going backwards <laughs> a bit, but um, consumption got back up to and listenership got up to, to kind of pre-pandemic levels. Um, so, yeah, definitely a dip through like, say, March through the summer of last year, really then through the fall and up until this fall, probably pretty, pretty normal numbers. Um, and I think just maybe folks listening preferences have changed as, as all of our lives are just quite a bit different than they were before. Very good. Well, I want to transition over and talk about your remote team. So the team's fully remote, about 16 people total. I think that's including you. And you mentioned that you didn't necessarily have experience managing or hiring a team. So can you talk about the process of, growing. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't all at once. And I am interested in sort of the org chart and the like layers of management that you have in place. Yeah. So um, I, I think the most important thing for me, the most important thing is like, it's, it's all just an evolution, right? It's not like any unit steps of we were this and now we're that we were, you know, a team of three and now we're a team of eight. Like it's, Every new person that joins changes the dynamic a little bit in the team structure and the org chart and all that. So I think it's important um, from a recruiting and, and hiring perspective to, to hire people who not just are okay with that, but really thrive in the, the environment of constant change. Um, that's something that we've learned a lot lately is, is people who are really good with being challenged and being kind of faced with a lot of uncertainty in their job. And not no, not no job security way, but just in a, Hey, your job might change tomorrow. And I'm going to ask you to do something totally different. Um, we've had people who are not okay with that and, and need a lot of structure. And even now, like we're just not that structured. I mean, we, we very loosely plan out a quarter of, of product work at a time. Um, but, but things like marketing campaigns are week to week. And so we need people who are super nimble. 
um, there just from a mindset perspective and their tolerance for that. Um, from a management perspective, it's changed a lot and how the team is run and, and, and how we communicate and organize and, and um, set goals. Um, most recently, we have adopted the OKR model. I don't know if you're familiar with OKRs, so objectives and key results. So popularized by like some of the big kind of Silicon Valley companies, including Google. Um, it's just a way to, in a really systematic way, set goals for the companies the company on like a company level uh, and then like division levels, like marketing and sales and product and support and, you know, things like that. Um, And give really specific goals for everyone to achieve to kind of lead up to the main corporate objective. Um, So there's a lot more (laughs) kind of to it than that, but as opposed to just, Hey, we're a rudderless ship out here and everybody is working towards whatever they think is important is, you know, me as the founder taking the time and mental energy to say, like, what do I think is the most important thing for the company to be successful in the next 90 days? Write it down, share it with everybody, get their buy-in and input and, and collaborate on those specific kind of key metrics um, and then shut everything else out for the next 90 days. And that's that's kind of where the magic has happened for us is us to be able to say, hey, this is it. You know, everything else not everything else, but, but everything else that's like elective that you might want to work on is just not going to happen because it's not part of our OKRs. Um, and, and it's been, it's, it's been a growing experience. I mean, it's not, um, it's not without its learning opportunities, I'll say. Um, but we're just finishing up our first real quarter of it and, and it's been really super positive. Um, and and we're, we're kind of shaping what the first quarter of next year will look like, uh, and kind of going deeper into OKRs. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's kind of the biggest thing that guides how the team focuses. Um, and then, and then from there, like in terms of communication, obviously like Slack and Notion and GitLab and, and all these kinds of things. Um, and then we, we're, we try to be relatively asynchronous. Like there's not a ton of kind of chatter going on in Slack every day. Um, but we do have what some folks might think is kind of a lot of calls. Like I have a call at least once a day with different kind of groups in the team. So we have like an all hands meeting on Monday. We have marketing on Tuesday, sales on Wednesday, product on Thursday. Um, And those are nice just because you don't go too long without being able to check in with almost everybody, even if it's in a kind of small group setting. Um, and, And like as great as notion and all these tools are like, there's no substitute for a bunch of smart people getting together and, and working on a problem in, in real time. And, and so, yeah, I mean, from a hiring perspective, we are, we do have a strong preference to kind of folks in the Americas time zones or in Europe, um, just because, you know, in Europe, they're six hours, five or six hours from the East coast. Um, I just moved last week from, I used to live in France and now live on the East coast in Rhode Island. Um, and so definitely feel, feel both sides of that coin of, of being, you know, on the early side and, and now kind of on, on regular time zones. But um, yeah, I mean, having someone in Vancouver and then someone in Thailand and then someone in, you know, Montenegro or something would be just like too much. So we, we don't draw hard lines, but it's a strong preference. Got it. I want to go back to a couple of things you mentioned there. So it sounded like, people's roles can change pretty often. Do you have any specific, um, I don't want to say horror stories, but any interesting stories where someone's role changed fairly dramatically from like what they thought and either it worked out well or it didn't work out well. And if you don't have one, I have some follow-up questions too, but any interesting stories about the shifting roles that pop up? Um, I don't have any, I don't have any specifics, but I have kind of just a general way we think about it is, is like really try to lean into people's strengths as opposed to try to bringing up their weaknesses. Um, and I, that that's worked pretty well for us. Um, it, so I, I would just say like, we try pretty hard not to put a square peg in a round hole, you know, but, but just, just keep folks aligned with what they're good at and they like. Um, and I think that's, that's a pretty good model. Okay. Yeah. And with the remote team in general, were there any specific challenges with COVID or did that just work out nicely because you have the remote team? Yeah, it was 
Totally seamless. Yeah. I mean, it's great. We were supposed to have a, a team retreat in Portugal uh, last summer, two summers ago, I guess. And that obviously just didn't happen. But um, yeah, that was about the biggest one. Okay. And I, I heard another podcaster ask a question like this. I thought it was good. How do you get feedback to your team when they mess up or you need them to fix something? And basically, it's like, how do you give bad news to someone on your team? <sighs> Yeah, this is really hard. And I think this is contrary to a lot of our um, personal styles, right? Is like being passive is probably the best word and passive aggressive maybe is is the reality. Um, unintentionally, right? Like uh, we just want to be nice people and we don't want to work with jackasses. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. and, and so like as a result of that, you aren't honest with people. And, and that's super harmful. Um, so there's a really good book called Radical Candor that talks a lot about this. Um, and, and like the, the, the extreme of it is like you, you sit someone down to fire them one day and they've never gotten a proper review and they've never gotten feedback. And like how unfair is that? As opposed to, hey, you did this thing. It wasn't great. Next time, let's do this. And that's a really kind of light version of it. Or, or like there's a whole spectrum of, of kind of more intense direct feedback between that and, you know, you're going to get fired. Um, and, and honestly, like I've not done perfect at this just because I am a pretty chill person, you know, like I'm just not I, like I, I really, 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 really want to succeed. Um, but I also know that like a big part of this company is the people that are not me. Right. And so like micromanaging people and having my finger on every decision that's made is just not the kind of company I want to build. And so there's got to be some leeway that, that folks have to make mistakes and, and that kind of stuff. And so we typically tend towards like retros um, to, to give that feedback and pull those learnings out. Um, and I have a call every other week with most everyone on the, on the team. And that's the the kind of safe space where it's just one-on-one -on -one. anything that they want to say to me, anything I want to say to them happens then. And the goal is that there's not this kind of crescendo buildup of an annual review of you suck and you're going to get, you know, on the performance improvement planner, but just like, Hey, this thing happened last week. Like, let's not do that again. Um, and, and that's the goal. Um, how well we do, Honestly, I don't, I don't know, but, but that's the goal. I think those one-on-one -on -one meetings are really important. When I had back in the corporate days, I had a fairly sizable team and I made it a point to meet with everyone because it's really easy to just think someone's doing fine over on their Island. And then all of a sudden it blows up or vice versa. Um, yeah. and, and some, I mean, a lot of times if things are going fine, you can just shoot the shit and just have a conversation, which is, I mean, I think pretty valuable. We may, it's easy to push back, especially now, since I haven't had a corporate job in a long time to think like, oh yeah, meetings are fine. Like no big deal. Like it's useful to have the one-on-one -on -one interaction, but you know, s sitting where I am now in my like golden studio <laughs> palace, uh, it's easy for me to say, but yeah, I think it's, it's not a waste of time to do one-on-one -on -one meetings. Any advice for people, um, that, might think that, I mean, it sounds like you're making an effort at least every two weeks to chat with everyone. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of the times it is just shooting the shit. Um, and it, a lot of times it is, you know, Hey, this thing was mentioned or this thing that's happening. I'm unclear about, or I'm not cool with, or, you know, whatever, uh, it is the time where like improve, you know, performance improvements are discussed. Um, just because like, I don't want to have like this big, huge annual review process. I, I have a lot of friends that, that do annual reviews. And to me, like that's just bottling it up too much to where I mean, if I have to wait six or eight or 10 months to talk to somebody about something, then there's almost no hope that it'll be recoverable. Um, so that's what I say is these micro adjustments are a lot easier than this one big whole thing. Um, but, but also like I, management style is like a style, right? And, and it's taking OKRs or the EOS, the entrepreneur operating system and rocks and all these kind of things and making it your own. Uh, we've, we've fucking done it all I feel yeah. like at this yeah. point and, and are just finding the flavor of these things that, that work for us, you know?
perfect. And you can kind of pick and choose and keep the ones from the different systems that gel with yeah. the team. Perfect. Yeah, totally. How many hours do you work a week uh, now? And I'm curious how it shifted over the trajectory of the company. I work about 30, 35 hours a week right now. And um, if it's all going right, it's all working on the business and not in the business, right? To the, to the E-Myth um, kind of paradigm. And, and we're pretty close with a team of like 15 other than me. Like everyone is responsible for, for kind of something. If we're, you know, for each kind of part of the business. Um, there was a time I was working really hard when we were just smaller and I was doing support and marketing and sales and product. Uh, and, and that's just like, I could never do that again, but I was probably working 50 or 60 hours a week then. And, and that's just, it's just super hard. And like we, like I mentioned, we, we raised like just under a million dollars in, in funding and, and it's really nice to be able to put that, to hiring really talented people to take care of parts of, of the business that, that I'm not good at or don't like. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I try to allocate those funds. And then what's the ideal work week for you, I guess, like in terms of numbers of hours, just curious about that. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with where I am. Okay. Yeah. 30 hours. Pretty, pretty good. Not too bad. And I was going to say, I know, I remember in the earlier days, you did answer a couple of my support tickets. And then recently I don't, I'm not a squeaky wheel. I don't want you to think that Craig, but you actually answered <laughs> one, an email that I sent uh, from the support team as well. And you answered that. So you're in the weeds a little bit. Give you yep. credit for that. Yep. All right. So let's talk about podcast analytics. I warned you that I was going to grill you on this and I've, I've complained a bunch and I complain about people, unfortunately, just like you, Craig, who will say, yeah, we got great analytics over here at this podcast hosting uh, company, uh, but it's really hard to get accurate information. I could kind of get the number of downloads, but that's about it. So what is actually important? What should I care about? What would be nice to have? And I'll give you a chance to explain yourself and tell me why <laughs> it's so hard as a hosting company to give us this information. Yeah, it's, it's super hard, right? I mean, um, it's something that will literally never be done from our end be, because it changes a lot. Like, uh, the, the interaction of, you know, bots and crawlers and, and all these kind of artificial forms of, of traffic, um, change a lot. And, uh, and, and kind of how that impacts the, the kind of raw data. Um, and then kind of like how much data we have and how we display it to, to folks is, is the other kind of question there. Um, I, I think the, the reason that podcast analytics suck is that once a file leaves our platform, we don't have any visibility to it anymore. So, so if you compare it to say Google analytics or YouTube or something like that, like that's an entirely kind of enclosed ecosystem or loop where like they know, when play was pressed and how long somebody watched your video on YouTube and stuff like that. Once a file leaves our system and you're using overcast or Apple podcasts on your phone, like we don't see that file anymore, you know, and there's no ping back and all of the podcasting app providers, I think rightfully so are very privacy uh, focused where they don't want to send that information to us. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, Bob downloaded episode 37 on Thursday and listened for 12 minutes is never going to happen in a, in a conventional public podcasting realm. Um, we do get all of that information with our mobile app in private podcasting. So I don't know folks are kind of familiar with private podcasting as opposed to public podcasting like this, where it's out and it's on Apple podcasts and Spotify and anyone can listen. Private podcasting is kind of by invite only. It's like a membership site in podcast format. And we have, a mobile app, iOS and Android, where folks can listen and you can go in and download or stream the file. And then we report, okay, Bob listened to episode 37 on December 25th for 12 minutes um, because we control the playback environment there. But, but until you do, or if, you know, other providers are, they're not going to be able to give that kind of level of data, Perfect. which is what folks want. I know. And, and that was mostly in jest. I understand the limitations and exactly what you described. Yeah. So 
but, but I, and just one more, sorry, oh, just yeah, one more thing, uh, like for the po- podcasting kind of ecosystem is this is why Spotify has gotten so popular is they're a closed system, right? They are YouTube of podcasting, right? Um, to where they're the platform, they're the advertisers, or they, they have the relationship with the advertisers and they control the playback environment. And so they have the whole stack, you know, and you've seen some acquisitions, the podcasting like kind of industry of like advertiser platform, like Castos um, and mobile app in the past. And like those aligning is super powerful. Um, and, and I can see that more of that will continue to happen. If, if the ad model is, is the model that will continue to monetize the industry, which, which I don't know that it will be, but um, yeah. Okay. Actually, and can you, I want you to keep going on that. Like if advertising will be the model, but just, want to make sure I understand from a podcaster's point of view, like what metrics should I care about or, or downloads enough? Like, is that enough for me to understand what's going on or should I be more curious about deeper analytics? Yeah. I, I, I mean, for most all podcasters that that's enough, right? Like on a per episode basis is the number going kind of up and to the right. You know, so you see you release an episode on Tuesday and you see this big spike and there's a kind of a long tail after that. Is that number going up every every episode you release or every month or something like that? If the answer is yes, like you're doing the 80-20, you know, of it, of of what you need for for a podcast. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then let's jump back on the monetization situation. So advertising is sort of the primary uh situation now so yeah where do you see it going it sounds like you had a little doubt with it yes i mean we we try to be a little contrarian there because we are putting all of our eggs in the private podcasting basket um when it comes to the the future of the platform and monetization is nobody wants to hear another fucking (laughs) advertisement for cast for mattresses it's just not relevant for almost all shows and audiences um whereas the ability to control your audience exposure to your to your content, like control that experience, um, to charge money directly for access to your content, or, or to tie it into your membership site or your course or your online store, or e-commerce or whatever, is just so much more of a natural extension of like how we are normally. Right? Is like I do this thing and it's great, and then I have these friends that I have over for dinner and we talk about this thing, right? And like it's the same idea. It's like my life is my life. And then I have this other circle that, that I do special things with. Um, and we think that we're kind of doing the same thing in the podcast format. The other thing is it's just really hard to make a decent amount of money, uh, with ads in podcasting, right? So podcasting typically runs on a CPM. So costs per thousand downloads. Uh, and that CPM for a really good show is 25 or $30. So if you have a thousand downloads for an episode, in the first six weeks, you make 25 or 30 bucks. Um, Platform wide for us, very few shows do that. Right. Um, Like maybe 5%. Um, And so the ability for any podcaster to make any amount of money, any appreciable amount of money is, is just like, it's ridiculously low. Whereas if you have a thousand people listening to your show to get 50 of them to pay you $10 a month, is like, that's pretty realistic. Um, and, and we see a ton of people coming into us and saying, Hey, I have this membership site over here or this community or this course where I have a bunch of people coming in and interacting with me. I want to extend how I connect with them to podcast format. And I'm going to repurpose my weekly zoom meetings with this group as a podcast and offer it to those members if they aren't able to make the call. And so they're able to do that. And we have all sorts of automations and direct integrations with, with a lot of providers that folks are using to power the rest of their kind of online business. Um, and that's where we see the future. And do you have any specific, I guess, case studies or examples where someone has done this pretty successfully that you could talk about here? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we have, um, you know, without kind of naming names, just cause I haven't gotten like, you know, sign off from folks, but like, sure. Uh, a bunch of uh, uh, quite a few folks in um i don't even know what's the what's the word but um you know like urban myths or urban legends kind of uh podcast you know bigfoot bigfoot and things like this uh folks just love hearing about it right and so a lot of 
our customers have a public podcast where they release, you know, regular four episodes a week or a month. Uh, and then we'll have an extra bonus episode that's only for members. And so they have a membership site. Maybe it's on, you know, Squarespace and they use member space to power their membership site. And then they connect, connect member space to Castos directly through an integration where when a new person signs up and pays their 10 bucks a month, that person gets added as a private podcast subscriber in Castos and gets the bonus episode every month. Um, same for courses, same for weight loss, same for you know coaches and consultants who already connect with people in a way and want to repurpose or extend that relationship with with their members or students or audience uh, in in podcast format. Got it. Yep. So changing gears a little bit here, there are like I mean podcasting is growing. I'm starting another show myself and like doing more and more. I just, I love the format and everything. And there's a lot more bigger companies that are producing, I mean, this really highly produced high quality shows. I mean, basically they're the radio shows from back in the day that are the people are just moving over to podcasts. So what impact do you see that having on smaller shows like mine that are more, uh, we'll just say lo-fi and low, low production value? <laughs> Um, it's making it more difficult, right? Like I'd, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that. Um, I, I think that a lot of shows like this and, and like mine are, are needing to kind of level up our games to, to stay competitive and relevant for, for our listeners because they can go listen to NPR like shows that, um, are produced by indie, indie creators. Um, but, but are really, really, really good. And, and so that just makes it challenging for us at the same time. There's always an interest and alignment for really niche tar targeted audiences and content and shows. Um, so I think that's the most important thing is just two bearded white guys talking about, you know, sports or whatever, or, or online business is not going to make it these days. But if they get really specific uh, and really targeted and aligned their kind of content and audience and messaging, they can 100% still be successful with a I'll say basic kind of show setup. And with YouTube, and, and I have another show, I actually publish all the, every episode over on YouTube as well. So how do you see podcasting and YouTube fitting together and, you know, helping to grow a show? Yeah. I mean, we, um, we believe pretty strongly that like your podcast should be on YouTube. Um, whether you record native video content, like we're recording today, video content, and I'm guessing you'll publish this to YouTube or for my podcast. Um, and for our podcast at cast us called audience, we don't record video, but have a service within the platform that converts it to video audio an audio episode to video format automatically and publishes it to YouTube. Um, so you're getting a, video presence for your podcast on YouTube without doing the video work. Um, so I think either way you slice it, whether you record a zoom call or, you know, whatever in video and you put it on YouTube, that's cool. Or don't and use a service like ours to just automatically convert it for you is, is the way to go. Okay. And any best practices to you, I guess, get the best reach over on YouTube or the cross pollination that would work best. I don't gosh i don't have any like silver bullets there i mean i think it's a lot of the the typical like best seo practices you know titling and show notes or descriptions and links and things like that uh just to make sure that all of that is there um having a thumbnail image is really important on youtube so folks know just by looking at the image what what they're getting into um yeah i think those are some of the best practices Okay, cool. Well, as we're wrapping up here, any anything else that I forgot to ask you that you want to mention here before we tell people where they can find you? No, I mean this is a ton of fun. Thanks, thanks for for chatting through all this. You're welcome. Yeah, it's been been a blast. I'm glad we were able to connect here. So, yeah, where can people uh, find you? And you know, you can mention your your podcast and other shows over there on Castos as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so castos.com, C-A-S-T-O-S.com. Folks want to kind of check out what we're doing there. We have a, an academy, so a bunch of free resource. Anybody who's kind of looking to get into podcasting, there's hours and hours of, of kind of video tutorials and stuff there. So academy.castos.com if you want to check it out. Um, our podcast is called Audience, um, and we publish it every Thursday. It's really great if you're kind of looking to level up your, your podcast game. Awesome. Thanks, Craig. We'll catch up soon.
Thanks, Doug. Definitely check out Castos if you are interested in starting a podcast, which I highly recommend. I like podcasting a lot. You probably hear me talk about how much I like podcasting in general. I got the other show, Mile High Fi. The thing is, I like it so much that Mile High Fi is going to turn into a network. So we're, we're going to have a, a few shows. I'm not sure how many or how fast we're going to get them rolling, but things are going really well over there. And Castos actually makes it pretty easy to have a network. So I would check them out if you are interested in podcasting. One thing from the interview that was a little bit surprising was how much Craig emphasized the importance of having a technical co-founder, or if you're technical to have a marketing or more business and operations co-founder. It does make sense, you know, if you're starting off, but it's it's pretty telling that even after Craig is through maybe some of the, the biggest technical struggles that he went through, he would still recommend to get a technical co-founder. And the reason why I'm surprised is you have to give up a significant amount of equity. I mean, it could have been a 50-50 split or something like that. I'm not sure if that's how you know Craig would have shaped it. If you come in and you have uh, perhaps a bit of a established business already, maybe you're six months in and maybe things are kind of running, maybe you could bring in a technical co-founder at a smaller equity level, perhaps. Maybe there's other pieces of value that they could get out of it. But anyway, it is telling and I, I imagine there were a lot of a lot of struggles or a lot of frustrating hours spent if Craig still thinks that a technical co-founder would be a very smart move. So I guess keep that in mind as you're you're moving through you know your journey. Shoot me an email if you have any follow-up questions on this episode. And I think that's it for today. So thanks a lot to Otis for sponsoring this particular episode. Definitely check them out. And if you haven't listened to the Mile High Fi podcast, I'd love it if you if you did. That is where I, I talk about personal finance and financial independence. And you know me, sometimes just some random stuff. My, my good friend Carl Jensen is the co-host and we interview some interesting and prominent financial independence, uh, I guess, people. Just call I mean, they're all people. We're people. All right, so we'll catch you on the next episode and have a great day out there. <laughs>